Welcome to Room 106. I'm John Gagan from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition taking a deep dive into more of the government's proposed changes to the national planning policy framework. But before we get into that, here are the key news stories from the past seven days. My first story is about the appointment of yet another Housing and Planning Minister. Last week, Lucy Fraser was appointed as the new Culture Secretary by the Prime Minister as part of his Cabinet reshuffle, which meant that she left the Housing and Planning role after just three months. A couple of days later, Redditch MP Rachel McLean was confirmed as her replacement, making her the sixth person to take on the job in little more than a year. My second story also concerns changing personnel at the Department for Levelling Up Housing and Communities. The Director of Planning at the Department, Conrad Smewing, is to leave for a Treasury job just four months after being appointed. Planning has learned in an exclusive story. Next, we have the news that the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which oversees planning for major energy infrastructure, has been split. Again, this was part of the Prime Minister's Cabinet reshuffle, which involved the creation of a new Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, which is to be led by the former Business Secretary and Housing Minister, Grant Shapps. Finally, we have a story about the Court of Appeal quashing a council's planning permission for what's been described as a bridge to nowhere to support an 826-home scheme. Judges in the court found that committee members had wrongly failed to consider the wider impacts of the housing development alongside the infrastructure. More details on each of those stories, including Rachel McLean's planning track record and reaction to her appointment, can be found on planningresource.co.uk. OK, so to continue our exploration of the implications of the proposed MPPF revisions, I'm going to pass you over to planning's editor Richard Garlick. Richard is in Room 106, the vault in which all new planning information accumulates. Over to you, Richard. I'm joined in Room 106 by one of Planning's regular contributors, Ben Cochin, who's been looking at the element of the National Planning Policy Framework proposed changes, which is kind of embedding the need for the biggest towns and cities in the country to accept an uplift in the housing need numbers that they provide for. Ben? Oh, hello, yes. It's been fun. I'm sure. To start off with, just remind us how long this policy of uplifting housing need in the 20 biggest urban areas has existed and what it's said up to now. Well, you have to cast your mind back to 2020 when it first came on the agenda the standard method for calculating housing needs, it gets reviewed from time to time. And the figures that came out in that year were actually rather disappointing to the government because they actually showed that needs were going down. And this would have meant that the housing targets for local authorities would have been below their aspiration, I suppose, the magic figure of 300,000 homes a year. So. To fix that, they rather randomly, some people have called it a quick fix, they put a 35% uplift on the major urban centres in England. Quite randomly, they just said, you, London, Nottingham, Sheffield, all these other, these big collaborations, they had to increase their targets by 35%. So one day, if you were one of these big centres, you basically, if you were a planner in one of those places, you had in your in-tray the the need to provide 10,000 homes over a certain period, 
And all of a sudden, that went up by 35%. Correct. Well, this has to be prefaced by it only took effect when you were reviewing your local plan. So those who had an up-to-date plan, they were safe until it came up for renewal. Then it hit them, yeah. And now this proviso has been added to the National Planning Policy Framework, or they're proposing that it's added to the National Planning Policy Framework. Exactly. What happened was that previous round of reviews of the NPPF, they could have put it in then, but this time they decided to put it into the NPPF. It was previously in something called the Planning Practice Guidance Notes, which are a sort of technical document telling councils how to do their planning. Uh, But now it's proposed that it should be in the NPPF, this national planning document. Because So is it significant that it's been added to the NPPF? Yes, this is now national policy, not a quick fix. So I think what people are saying is, is that it puts these 20 authorities under a bit more pressure to, to, to deliver on that uplift. What's also quite interesting here is that it seems now to be national policy that all this new housing should be focused, should be concentrated on these cities. And I suppose relieves the pressure on smaller towns and some cities, I guess, because they're not having to have higher targets. Am I right in understanding that they are perfectly entitled to ask neighbouring authorities to help them meet these figures? Well, yes, there's a bit of an idea. And and, and obviously, they've been trying to do that. Authorities have been trying to spread the load around in other surrounding districts. One would have to say surrounding authorities are not particularly interested, and understandably so, in taking on some of the housing need of their big neighbour. They've got problems of their own, and the big neighbour is being left to sink or swim, I guess. So you don't think it's that likely that many of these big cities are going to get much help from neighbouring areas? No, and this is linked to another policy. Of course, we've had the duty to cooperate requirement. Government is gone soft on that, withdrawing that, and this new alignment idea that we don't have many details of yet, so councils may have to align policies, but the obligation there to cooperate seems to have been weakened. So the prospects of sharing housing numbers across groups of authorities is unlikely. So what are the councils saying about what kind of help they're going to need in order to meet this requirement? Well, how are they going to do it, I think, is the interesting question here. And some are trying hard, and, and they are, but they're they're looking at every site possible. And it's not an easy task. They're looking at, I suppose, old school sites, old playing fields. And obviously, it's, it's not terribly good because you're in danger of losing local amenities. And there's quite an uproar here. Clive Betts, the chair of the House of Commons Select Committee, is questioning the minister and trying to get some sense of this, but he's saying that Sheffield, one of the cities, is going to have to use a lot of green spaces and that sort of thing. Okay. Finally, are there circumstances in which local authorities might be able to sidestep this requirement? Well, I I think that's a really interesting question. This is something which a lot of the councils drew out to me when I spoke to them, because there is this interesting clause at the end of the paragraph about the uplift, which says... Councils will be required to achieve that 35% uplift unless it would conflict with policies in this framework and legal obligations. And I think that's very, very interesting and it's going to cause a lot of debate. So they're basically saying that, look, we'll have to review Greenbelt 
or we'll have to mash up our suburbs to pack in all this extra housing. Now, in the NPPF, as it's being amended, that sort of thing is not encouraged. So that's their get-out-of-jail-free card. You talked about mashing up the suburbs. What, what, what do you mean by that? Sorry, that was a rather loose statement, I have to say. Um, if you take London, and this, this one commentator drew this example, in London, outer suburbs, low density, little terrace houses, not all terrace, some sort of semis and detached, the council could put forward plans to densify. They assemble some sites and, or the, a developer comes forward and says, look, I've, I own this collection of houses. I want to put this site forward for high density to help you reach your housing target. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it. I threw you said mash, which, uh, <laughs> but, but no, I, I get it. So it's about this idea that you um, replace your big old Victorian house with a block of flats with maybe nine flats in it or something like that. Exactly. And the NPPF, as being amended, is very protective towards existing quality and character. So new development has to be in character with the existing context. And clearly, if you put a high-density tower block in a, on a suburban street, that doesn't fit with the context. So councils could argue that's the only way we can achieve our 35% uplift, and that would run counter to other parts of the NPPF. It will be interesting to see how inspectors at a, a planning inquiry would buy that one. Now, that all totally makes sense. So we're, we're quite likely to see a lot of these areas pointing to other parts of the MPPF, which justify them not hitting the 35% target. Indeed. People say that a lot of this is quite sort of political. They want to show that they can achieve that magic 300,000 homes, but they don't want to upset a lot of people living in the suburbs. So you, you've got a conflict attention here that will play itself out, I guess. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I'll leave you here to continue uh, poring over the details of that particular proposal. We'll we'll soon be through all the the NPPF proposed changes, but um, it's going to keep us going for a while yet. And uh, now I have to go over and see if I can find David Blackman, who's in another corner of Room 106 and has been looking at when these different proposals are due to come into effect. So he can't be too far away, uh, given that this is the bit of Room 106 which contains all the admittedly extensive documents that, that came with the MPPF consultation. Ah, there he is, David. Hello, Richard. You've had the unenviable task of sifting through all this stuff that was announced before Christmas, and we decided that there were 39 different things that planners needed to know about the MPPF consultation. But actually, not all of the elements of the announcement are going to come into effect at the same time. So you've taken on the um, task of, uh, of finding out what exactly is going to happen and when. So can you start off by telling us what's the stuff that's likely to happen really quite quickly from the MPPF consultation? I suppose the short answer is a lot. The way the process works is that the MPPF is being consulted on now, and that finishes the beginning of next month on March the 2nd. And then the government says it will produce the final revisions in the spring. And these contain some pretty uh, cornucopia of pretty significant changes for the system. I mean, one that will be of a lot of interest is changes around how local authorities go about calculating their local housing need. This will be a um, 
according to the draft NPPF, the standard method, which will be known to many of our readers, will be a uh, an advisory starting point to inform plan making and not a mandatory guide. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy in that in the background. So that's the product of that. But there's also sort of provisions in here such as uh, there'll be more explicit indications in planning guidance that if you have local characteristics, such as if you're an island with a high percentage of elderly residents or a big student population, that's got to be taken into account when you're calculating housing need. The draft also says that the headline figures on meeting housing need in full can be outweighed by other factors such as the adverse impact that building at a higher than normal density in your area which would result in out-of-character development, that could also be taken into account. So there's quite a few sort of things there. And of course, uh, another headliner thing as well is that it says that there's clarification that local planning authorities won't be required to review their green belt boundaries if doing so is the only way of meeting their assessed housing need in full. All these changes to the MPPF come into force as soon as the new MPPF is in place, which the government says by the spring. So we're, we're expecting some changes. Of course, we know in um, Whitehall language, spring continues until June the 22nd. But uh, yeah. <laughs> with, it, with, that, with that caveat, also big changes around uh, housing land supply. Councils will be able to take past over delivery of housing into account, removing the requirement for local authorities with, a, with an up-to-date local plan, i.e. one adopted less than five years ago, to continually demonstrate a deliverable five-year supply of housing land course, that's a really big one for local planning authorities and developers. Removing the requirement for councils to identify buffers for their five-year housing land supply. This, of course, can range from a minimum of 5% for a typical local authority, up to 20% for those local authorities which have failed a housing delivery test due to undelivery. So some big things there. And of course, allowing local planning authorities to include historic oversupply in their five-year housing land supply calculations. Housing delivery tests, pretty important changes there too. The addition of a permissions test to the current housing delivery test that would switch off the application of the presumption in favour of sustainable development, i.e. the famous tilted balance due to under-delivery. If a local planning authority can demonstrate there are sufficient deliverable permissions to meet the housing requirements set out in its local plan. It doesn't stop there. There's also changes around onshore wind. There are various textual changes surrounding the general guidance. However, the, the clearest thing is that it eases the process for replacing old wind turbines with more powerful models. This is known in uh, renewable energy speak as repowering. So basically, if you've already got a wind farm in your local area or on a given site, that can be replaced by a newer and more modern and generally much more efficient model. Also on the renewable energy front or sort of the, the sustainable energy front, there's going to be significant weight to the importance of energy efficiency when buildings especially large non-domestic ones, are being adapted, while it's also continuing to take into account existing heritage guidance. So is that it for the stuff that we can expect in the spring revision? There's even more. (laughs) This is a final cherry on the cake. Um, The soundness test for local plans will be softened. So instead of having to be justified, which, as the policy paper points out, requires very large amounts of evidence, the examination process will only have to assess whether the local planning authorities' proposed targets meet housing need as far as possible. So that's another important change. Okay, so it should make it easier for local authorities to get local plans in place, but potentially not such rigorously um, tested sort of local plans. Yes. Okay, so... That is quite a lot of stuff that is all due to happen in the next few months. But that's not all that they've said 
they're going to do in terms of changing the NPPF? Yes. So this is sort of outlined in a policy paper that was published at the same time as the draft NPPF. And this flags up a few significant changes, which will be introduced really following the passage of the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, which, of course, as we know, is going through Parliament at the moment. This flags up what the paper describes as a fuller review of the NPPF. And a lot of this will be about implementing commitments in the government's 2021 net zero strategy, which is really designed to ensure the planning policy contributes to mitigating and adapting to climate change as fully as possible. These changes will run alongside the creation of a new suite of national development management policies, which of course are intended to remove a lot of the duplication of policies that take place in local plans at the moment. I think there's also some stuff in there about measures to encourage developers to build out their schemes more rapidly. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yes. So what the government's trying to do is encourage more rapid build out of sites by developers. The government said it's going to consult on publication of new official data on developers of sites over a certain size that fail to match their commitments when building out. This would require developers to explain how they propose to increase the diversity of housing tenures in order to maximise the rate at which schemes are sold or occupied. This is what's known in the trade as the as the absorption rate. And they're also going to highlight in the future revisions to the MPPF, which we're talking about, not the ones taking place in the spring, that delivery will become a material consideration in planning applications. And that will allow refusal for those with trajectories proposing a slow build-out rate, i.e. if you're a developer, you're proposing a fairly slow build-out rate, that will become a valid reason for turning down an application. These are all the things that the government is saying it's going to do as part of this fuller review of the NPPF that's going to happen after the levelling up and regeneration bill gets royal assent. I have to say there are some quite tricky and controversial areas that they're sort of moving into with these, aren't there? So we're probably not necessarily expecting any of these changes to happen in the immediate future. They've got to be, several of them have got to be consulted on and then there'll be quite a long process that follows that, I guess. Well, particularly the one around the slow build-out rate or the idea of uh, which, of course, challenges a very long-standing planning principle that you consider an application purely on its own merits rather than who's submitting it. You mentioned also the duty to cooperate. Indeed, yes, yes. So the policy paper talks about, well, as we know, the much unloved duty to cooperate is due to be axed as part of the... Um, as a levelling up and regeneration bill. The policy paper talks about new alignment policy, which is designed to secure engagement between authorities where strategic planning considerations cut across boundaries. To be honest, though, there's not very much detail on that in the policy paper, but it does say that there'll be further consultation undertaken on this new alignment policy, which will be introduced as part of this future review of the NPPF. Right, okay, well, that's a... Very tricky one for some civil servant to take on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we've got a couple of other things that we're, as you say, expecting this spring. You mentioned the um, maybe some more thoughts about how the uh, national development management policies will work. And also we're waiting for news about the um, possible suspension of housing delivery test penalties. You mentioned the standard method, and I understand that we're sort of promised that although they're not changing the standard method for the moment, they are going to look at it next year. That's right, yes. But really what they're doing, going to do is sort of they're going to look at the implications of last year's census. Okay, and work that through. That's right, yeah. Okay. And then there's a whole load of fairly eye-catching proposals that you know, when you've dug into it, there doesn't seem to be any kind of set timetable for implementing them. Yeah, well, this a lot of this is um, the stuff that's kind of emerged out of the um, 
on the environmental agenda and the environmental improvement plan, which of course was announced with uh, quite a bit of, uh, of fanfare last week. So there's some things here. One of these is working with DEFRA to prevent developers, what they call in the policy papers, gaming new rules, which are due to come into force in November. New requirements that ensure a biodiversity net gain of 10% on development schemes. And the gaming they're talking about is uh, the risk that a developer could clear the site before submitting an application, therefore lowering the baseline of biodiversity from which any of this gain is assessed. Other things on this list where there's no set timetable in the policy paper are a review with DEFRA, which has been previously promised, to consider options for further protecting important ancient woodlands and tree habitats through the NPPF. The policy paper also talks about tightening up the rules on the use of artificial grass by developers in developments. And it talks about a review of policy and guidance on the production of strategic flood risk assessments. This is with a view to ensuring greater coverage of these assessments and ensuring they're up to date. Okay. And finally, seeing as you've been in one of the sort of darkest and most choked chambers in in room 106, looking at the local plan transitional arrangements. Now, can you just give us a few sort of what a few of the headline dates are for those transitional arrangements? The really important date is November 2024. This is really when the new system of 30-month local plans begins in earnest. So that's the earliest date when local planning authorities of the plan, which is more than five years old, must begin the new plan-making process under the new system. Another really key date is the 30th of June 2025, which is the deadline for submitting any old, well, what they refer to as old-style plans, i.e. plans being produced under the current system. Authorities that don't meet this deadline will need to prepare plans under the new plan-making system. October 2025, that's the earliest date for commencing the first examinations of the new style plans. 31st of December 2026 is the latest date for old-style plans, i.e. those being produced under the existing systems to be adopted and independent examinations concluded. April 2027 is the earliest date when we expect to see the adoption of the first new style plans, i.e. that's 30 months after the system kicks into place late next year. And the 31st of December 2031, the latest date, local planning authorities can begin the new plant style plan making process if their previous plan was adopted at the end of 2026. Fantastic. Thank you very much, David, for that quick tour of the transitional arrangements. I'm sure um, you'd be delighted to be invited back to talk about them in, in much greater depth on some other occasion. <laughs> well, we, we've got about we've got about 10 years to chew through this now, haven't we? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, David, thank you very much. I'll leave you uh, in room 106 to continue pouring over the uh, the transitional arrangements and the other sort of aspects of the timetable. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in here again soon. Super. Thank you. Bye. Great. That's another edition completed. And of course, more details on both of those topics are available on planningresource.co.uk. We'll see you in a week's time. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, And thanks for listening.